Hello and welcome to our podcast on a regional look at U.S. international trade. Today, we will be discussing the fascinating topic of how different U.S. states specialize in the production of particular goods and services, and how this specialization affects their international trade relationships. As we all know, the United States is a massive country with a diverse economy, and different regions of the country have historically developed different strengths in terms of the goods and services they produce. For example, California is known for its tech industry, while Texas is known for its oil and gas production. But how do these regional specializations translate into international trade relationships? Well, that's exactly what this PDF file is all about. In this article, economists Maximiliano Dvorkin and Hannah G. Schell analyze the interaction between industry specialization of U.S. states and the geographic distribution of U.S. international trade. They use a variety of data sources to paint a detailed picture of which states export and import the most and what kinds of goods they trade. One of the key takeaways from this article is that the regional characteristics of production and trade can have a significant impact on the economic well-being of different U.S. states. For example, states that are heavily specialized in industries that are vulnerable to international competition may be more exposed to the risks of globalization and trade imbalances. On the other hand, states that are diversified across a range of industries may be more resilient to these risks. Another interesting finding from this article is that the geographic distribution of U.S. international trade is highly concentrated. In other words, a relatively small number of states account for the majority of U.S. exports and imports. This has important implications for policymakers who are interested in promoting economic growth and job creation across the country. Overall, this PDF file provides a wealth of information and insights into the complex relationship between regional specialization, international trade, and economic development in the United States. Whether you're an economist, a policymaker, or just someone who's interested in learning more about how the U.S. economy works, I highly recommend giving it a read. In conclusion, a regional look at U.S. international trade is a fascinating and informative PDF file that sheds light on the complex relationship between regional specialization, international trade, and economic development in the United States. By analyzing data on which states export and import the most and what kinds of goods they trade, the authors provide valuable insights into the regional characteristics of production and trade that are important for policymakers and economists to understand. Whether you're interested in the impact of globalization on U.S. labor markets, the effects of trade imbalances on different regions of the country, or simply want to learn more about how the U.S. economy works, this PDF file is a must-read. So if you haven't already, Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the concept of relative income traps and how they affect developing countries around the world. To start off, let's define what we mean by relative income traps. 
Essentially, this refers to the phenomenon where certain countries remain stuck at a constant low or middle-income level relative to the United States, despite global economic growth. This is a persistent problem that has plagued many developing countries for decades, and it has important implications for policymakers and economists alike. So why do relative income traps occur? There are a number of factors that contribute to this phenomenon. One of the main reasons is that developing countries often lack the necessary infrastructure and institutions to support sustained economic growth. This includes things like a stable political environment, a well-functioning financial system, and a skilled workforce. Without these basic building blocks in place, it can be difficult for countries to attract foreign investment and develop their own domestic industries. Another factor that contributes to relative income traps is the issue of technology adoption. In order to compete in the global economy, countries need to be able to adopt and implement the latest technologies and production methods. However, this is often easier said than done. Developing countries may lack the necessary capital and expertise to invest in new technologies, and they may also face barriers to trade and investment that make it difficult to access the latest innovations. So what can be done to address the issue of relative income traps? There are a number of policy solutions that have been proposed over the years. One approach is to focus on building up the necessary infrastructure and institutions to support economic growth. This might involve investing in education and training programs, improving the regulatory environment, and building up the financial system. Another approach is to focus on promoting domestic industries and attracting foreign investment. This might involve implementing industrial policies that support the growth of specific sectors, such as manufacturing or technology. It might also involve offering tax incentives or other benefits to foreign investors who are willing to invest in the country. Of course, there are no easy solutions to the problem of relative income traps. It is a complex issue that requires a multifaceted approach. However, by understanding the underlying causes of this phenomenon and working to address them, it is possible for developing countries to break out of the cycle of low- and middle-income growth and achieve sustained economic prosperity. In conclusion, relative income traps are a persistent problem that affects many developing countries around the world. By addressing the underlying causes of this phenomenon and implementing targeted policy solutions, it is possible for countries to break out of the cycle of low- and middle-income growth and achieve sustained economic prosperity. While there is no one-size-fits-all solution to this problem, policymakers and economists can work together to develop tailored strategies that take into account the unique challenges and opportunities facing each country. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of our podcast. We hope that you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. And be sure to tune in next time for more insights into the world of economics and development. Hello and welcome to our podcast on aging and wealth inequality in a neoclassical growth model.
Today, we will be discussing the impact of demographic changes on wealth distribution and how these changes affect economic variables. As we all know, the world's population is aging rapidly. This demographic shift has significant implications for the economy, particularly in terms of wealth distribution. In this podcast, we will explore how demographic changes affect the distribution of wealth and how this, in turn, affects economic growth. To begin, let's define what we mean by wealth inequality. Wealth inequality refers to the unequal distribution of assets and resources among individuals or groups within a society. In other words, some people have more wealth than others, and this can have significant implications for their economic well-being. Now, let's turn to the neoclassical growth model. This model is a theoretical framework used to analyze economic growth over time. It assumes that economic growth is driven by technological progress and capital accumulation. In this model, individuals save a portion of their income, which is then invested in capital goods. This investment leads to increased productivity and economic growth. However, the neoclassical growth model assumes that all individuals have equal access to capital and that there is no wealth inequality. This assumption is unrealistic, as we know that wealth is not distributed equally in the real world. Therefore, we need to modify the neoclassical growth model to account for wealth inequality. One way to do this is to use an overlapping generations model. This model assumes that individuals live for two periods and that each generation is linked to the next through intergenerational transfers of wealth. In this model, wealth inequality can arise due to differences in saving behavior across generations. Now, let's turn to the impact of demographic changes on wealth distribution. As the population ages, the proportion of older individuals increases and the proportion of younger individuals decreases. This demographic shift can have significant implications for wealth distribution. For example, if older individuals hold a disproportionate amount of wealth, then as the population ages, wealth inequality will increase. This is because there will be fewer young individuals to inherit wealth from older generations. Conversely, if younger individuals hold a disproportionate amount of wealth, then as the population ages, wealth inequality will decrease. In addition to wealth distribution, demographic changes can also affect economic variables such as savings rates, investment rates, and economic growth. For example, if the proportion of older individuals increases, then the savings rate may decrease as older individuals consume more and save less. This, in turn, can lead to a decrease in investment rates and economic growth. On the other hand, if the proportion of younger individuals increases, then the savings rate may increase as younger individuals save more for their future. This can lead to an increase in investment rates and economic growth. Overall, it is clear that demographic changes have significant implications for wealth distribution and economic growth. As the population continues to age, it is important that policymakers take these factors into account when designing economic policies. In conclusion, we have discussed the impact of demographic changes on wealth distribution and economic growth. We have seen that the neoclassical growth model can be modified to account for wealth inequality and that demographic changes can have significant implications for economic variables. As always, it is important to stay informed about these issues 
and to engage in thoughtful discussions about how best to address them. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the current monetary policy debate in the United States and exploring the insights offered in the PDF file titled Three Challenges to Central Bank Orthodoxy. To begin, let's first define what monetary policy is. Monetary policy refers to the actions taken by a central bank, such as the Federal Reserve in the United States, to manage the supply and demand of money and credit in the economy. The goal of monetary policy is to promote economic growth, stability, and low inflation. Since the 2007-9 recession, the Federal Reserve has implemented an aggressive monetary policy strategy to stimulate economic growth and prevent deflation. This strategy has included keeping interest rates at historically low levels and purchasing large amounts of government bonds and other securities to increase the money supply. However, as the economy has recovered and inflation has remained low, there has been a debate about when and how the Federal Reserve should begin to normalize its monetary policy. This is where the PDF file we will be discussing comes in. The PDF file, Three Challenges to Central Bank Orthodoxy, outlines four broad categories of thinking about current U.S. monetary policy. The first category is a classic interpretation of current events based on traditional ideas of successful central banking practice. This is the central bank orthodoxy referenced in the title of the paper. The other three categories are mildly heretical and challenge aspects of the orthodoxy. Each has some appeal, but also important drawbacks. Each departs from the classic view by arguing that this time is different. The PDF file argues that while each challenge to orthodoxy is interesting and potentially helpful, ultimately the orthodox view is the favored basis for near- and medium-term monetary policy decisions. The orthodox view stresses the currently stark difference between FOMC objectives, which are arguably nearly attained, and FOMC policy tools, which remain in unemergency settings. A simple and prudent approach to current policy would be to begin normalizing the policy settings in an effort to extend the length of the expansion and to avoid taking unnecessary risks associated with exceptionally low rates and a large Federal Reserve balance sheet. In PDF file also discusses three important challenges to the orthodox view. The first challenge concerns possible overemphasis on labor market improvement in the orthodox view. One version would be that the empirical Phillips curve relationship is broken and therefore the Federal Reserve can continue a very accommodative policy without worry of pressing inflation concerns. We call this view strict inflation targeting. A key issue with this challenge to orthodoxy is that it may underestimate the importance of labor market performance in achieving the Federal Reserve's dual mandate of maximum employment and price stability. The second challenge to orthodoxy concerns the very low real interest rates that have persisted since the recession. 
This challenge argues that the current policy settings are not as accommodative as the orthodox view suggests and that the Federal Reserve should maintain its current policy stance until inflation reaches its target. However, the PDF file argues that this view may underestimate the risks associated with prolonged low interest rates, such as financial instability and the potential for inflation to rise rapidly. The third challenge to orthodoxy concerns the impact of ongoing globalization on domestic monetary policy decisions. This challenge argues that the Federal Reserve should pay more attention to foreign economic developments when making domestic monetary policy decisions. However, the PDF file argues that while globalization is an important consideration, the Federal Reserve's primary focus should remain on achieving its dual mandate of maximum employment and price stability. In conclusion, the PDF file three challenges to central bank orthodoxy offers valuable insights into the current monetary policy debate in the United States. While there are challenges to the orthodox view, the PDF file argues that the orthodox view is the favored basis for near- and medium-term monetary policy decisions. The Federal Reserve should begin to normalize its policy settings in an effort to extend the length of the expansion and avoid taking unnecessary risks associated with exceptionally low rates and a large Federal Reserve Bank. Hello and welcome to our podcast on market power and asset contractability in dynamic insurance contracts. Today, we will be discussing the challenges that households face in insuring against income shocks and how insurance contracts can help mitigate these risks. First, let's define what we mean by income shocks. Income shocks refer to unexpected changes in a household's income, such as job loss, illness, or natural disasters. These shocks can have a significant impact on a household's ability to maintain stable consumption, as they may have to dip into their savings or take on debt to cover their expenses. One way to mitigate the risks of income shocks is through insurance contracts. Insurance contracts allow households to transfer some of the risk of income shocks to an insurer in exchange for a premium. In a perfect world, the parties would sign a long-term contract that maximizes the surplus generated by the relationship and fully specifies the time paths of consumption and savings of the insured for all possible combinations of future income states. However, in practice, economic actors often cannot commit or are legally barred from committing to a long-term contract. This is where asset contractability and market power come into play. Asset contractability refers to the ability of the parties to the contract to adjust their savings and consumption decisions over time. Market power refers to the ability of the insurer to set prices and influence the terms of the contract. The authors of the PDF we are discussing today study the roles of asset contractability, market power, and rate of return differentials in dynamic insurance when the contracting parties have limited commitment. They define, characterize, and compute Markov perfect risk-sharing contracts with bargaining. These contracts significantly improve consumption, smoothing, and welfare relative to self-insurance through savings. 
incorporating savings decisions into the contract, asset contractability, implies sizable gains for both the insurers and the insured. The size and distribution of these gains depend critically on the insurer's market power. Finally, a rate of return advantage for insurers destroys surplus and is thus harmful to both contracting parties. In other words, the authors of the PDF are exploring how insurance contracts can be designed to be more efficient and beneficial for both the insurer and the insured. By incorporating asset contractability and considering the market power of the insurer, they are able to identify ways to improve consumption smoothing and welfare for both parties. However, there are still practical challenges that arise when trying to sign long-term insurance contracts. For example, costless renegotiation or switching providers is always an option for the insured, which can limit the insurer's ability to commit to a long-term contract. Additionally, legal restrictions may prevent insurers from offering certain types of long-term contracts. Despite these challenges, the authors of the PDF argue that dynamic insurance contracts can still be an effective way to mitigate the risks of income shocks. By incorporating asset contractability and considering the market power of the insurer, they are able to identify ways to improve consumption smoothing and welfare for both parties. In conclusion, the PDF we have been discussing today highlights the challenges that households face in insuring against income shocks and how insurance contracts can help mitigate these risks. By incorporating asset contractability and considering the market power of the insurer, dynamic insurance contracts can be designed to be more efficient and beneficial for both the insurer and the insured. While there are still practical challenges that arise when trying to sign long-term insurance contracts, the authors of the PDF argue that dynamic insurance contracts can still be an effective way to mitigate the risks of income. Hello and welcome to our podcast on monetary policy recommendations by James Bullard. In this episode, we will be discussing the current state of the U.S. economy and the role of the Federal Reserve in shaping monetary policy. To begin, let's talk about the Federal Open Market Committee, FOMC Day, which is responsible for setting the target range for the federal funds rate. This rate is the interest rate at which depository institutions lend reserve balances to other depository institutions overnight. The FOMC meets several times a year to assess economic conditions and determine whether to adjust the target range for the federal funds rate. In recent years, the FOMC has maintained a near-zero nominal interest rate policy in response to the financial crisis of 2007-2009. However, James Bullard, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, has been advocating for an end to this policy. He argues that while the FONC's goals have been met, the policy's settings remain extreme and could have negative long-term consequences for the economy. Bullard's argument is based on the idea of returning to the monetary equilibrium of 1984-2007. During this period, 
monetary policy was better understood, the effects of policies were more closely calibrated, and private sector expectations could move and adapt to ordinary adjustments of the policy rate, Bullard believes that returning to this equilibrium would be beneficial for the economy and would allow for more effective monetary policy. However, Bullard also acknowledges that there are situations where the nominal policy rate and the inflation rate remain low, either because liftoff does not materialize or because future negative shocks to the economy force a return to the zero interest rate policy. In such a situation, Bullard suggests that the equilibrium could become permanent, and he outlines several consequences of remaining at such an equilibrium over the long term. One of the consequences Bullard discusses is the impact on inflation expectations. If the policy rate remains low for an extended period, it could lead to a decline in inflation expectations, which could make it more difficult for the FOMC to achieve its inflation target. Another consequence is the impact on financial stability. Low interest rates could lead to excessive risk-taking and asset price bubbles, which could have negative consequences for the economy. Overall, Bullard's recommendations for monetary policy are based on a desire to return to a more stable and predictable equilibrium. While he acknowledges that there are situations where the policy rate may need to remain low, he believes that this should be the exception rather than the rule. Bullard's recommendations for monetary policy are based on a desire to return to a more stable and predictable equilibrium. While he acknowledges that there are situations where the policy rate may need to remain low, he believes that this should be the exception rather than the rule. In conclusion, Bullard's recommendations for monetary policy are thought-provoking and have important implications for the U.S. economy. While there is no one-size-fits-all solution to monetary policy, Bullard's emphasis on returning to a more stable and predictable equilibrium is a valuable contribution to the ongoing debate on the role of the Federal Reserve in shaping monetary policy. We hope you found this podcast informative and thought-provoking, and we encourage you to continue exploring this important topic. Hello and welcome to our podcast on secular stagnation and monetary policy. Today, we will be discussing a fascinating paper by Lawrence H. Summers, a renowned economist and former U.S. Treasury Secretary. So, what is secular stagnation? In simple terms, it refers to a prolonged period of slow economic growth, low inflation, and low interest rates. According to Summers, this phenomenon has been affecting the global economy since the 2008 financial crisis and is likely to persist for the foreseeable future. Why is secular stagnation a concern for the economy? Well, for starters, it means that there is a lack of demand for goods and services, which can lead to high unemployment, low wages, and reduced investment. Moreover, it limits the effectiveness of monetary policy which is the primary tool that central banks use to manage the economy. In his paper, Summers argues that the traditional approach to monetary policy, which involves adjusting short-term interest rates, 
is no longer sufficient to address the challenges posed by secular stagnation. He notes that interest rates have been near zero for over a decade in many advanced economies, yet growth remains sluggish. So, what are the alternatives to traditional monetary policy? Summers suggests that policymakers should consider unconventional measures, such as quantitative easing, QE, negative interest rates, and fiscal stimulus. QE involves buying large quantities of government bonds and other securities to inject money into the economy and lower long-term interest rates. Negative interest rates, on the other hand, involve charging banks for holding excess reserves, which encourages them to lend more and stimulate demand. Fiscal stimulus refers to government spending or tax cuts aimed at boosting economic activity. However, Summers acknowledges that these measures are not without risks and limitations. For example, QE can lead to asset price bubbles and inflation, while negative interest rates can hurt banks' profitability and discourage saving. Fiscal stimulus can also be difficult to implement in practice, especially in countries with high levels of debt. Overall, Summer's paper provides a thought-provoking analysis of the challenges facing the global economy and the need for innovative policy solutions. It highlights the importance of adapting to changing economic conditions and being open to unconventional ideas. In conclusion, secular stagnation is a complex issue that requires careful consideration and action from policymakers. We hope that this podcast has provided you with a better understanding of the topic and the insights offered by Lawrence H. Summers. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast on secular stagnation and monetary policy. We hope that you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read Lawrence H. Summers' paper, which provides a detailed analysis of the challenges facing the global economy and the need for innovative policy solutions. As always, we welcome your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. Hello and welcome to our podcast on student loans under the risk of youth unemployment. Today, we will be discussing the challenges faced by college graduates in finding jobs that match their qualifications and the financial difficulties that may arise as a result. We will also explore the optimal design of student loan programs to mitigate these challenges and encourage productive investments in human capital. As we all know, College education is becoming increasingly expensive, and many students are forced to take out loans to finance their education. However, the job market is not always kind to recent graduates, and many struggle to find employment that matches their qualifications. This can lead to spells of unemployment or underemployment, which can make it difficult for graduates to repay their student loans. The risk of youth unemployment can also impact the decision to invest in human capital, especially for those from more modest family backgrounds. 
students from low-income families may be hesitant to take on large amounts of debt to finance their education if they are not confident that they will be able to find a job that pays enough to repay their loans. So, what can be done to mitigate these challenges? The author of the PDF we are discussing today provides several insights into the optimal design of student loan programs. First, the author suggests that student loan programs should be designed to encourage productive investments in human capital. This means that loans should be targeted towards students who are likely to benefit the most from a college education and who are most likely to be able to repay their loans. Second, the author suggests that student loan programs should be designed to ensure that the financial burden of student loans does not fall disproportionately on low-income students. This can be achieved by providing income-based repayment plans that allow students to repay their loans based on their income level. Third, the author suggests that the provision of unemployment benefits and debt balances must be set as functions of the unemployment spell to provide the right incentives for youth to seek employment. This means that students who are struggling to find employment should be provided with additional support to help them find a job rather than being left to struggle on their own. Overall, the author of the PDF we are discussing today provides valuable insights into the challenges faced by college graduates in the face of youth unemployment and the optimal design of student loan programs to mitigate these challenges. By targeting loans towards students who are most likely to benefit from a college education, providing income-based repayment plans, and providing additional support to students who are struggling to find employment, we can help ensure that all students have access to the education they need to succeed in today's economy. In conclusion, it is important to recognize the challenges faced by college graduates in the face of youth unemployment and to take steps to mitigate these challenges. By designing student loan programs that encourage productive investments in human capital, provide income-based repayment plans, and offer additional support to students who are struggling to find employment, we can help ensure that all students have access to the education they need to succeed in today's economy. Thank you for listening to our podcast on student loans under the risk of youth unemployment. We hope you found this discussion informative and Hello and welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing the topic of public debt and its role in providing liquidity during financial distress. Public debt is a term that is often used in the media and political discourse, but what does it actually mean? In simple terms, public debt refers to the amount of money that a government owes to its creditors. This can include both domestic and foreign creditors, such as individuals, banks, and other countries. Governments typically issue bonds to raise money, which are then bought by investors who receive interest payments in return. So why do governments need to borrow money in the first place? There are a few reasons for this. Firstly, governments may need to finance public projects such as infrastructure, education, and healthcare. Secondly, they may need to provide support during economic downturns, such as unemployment benefits and stimulus packages. Finally, Governments may need to borrow money to pay off existing debt 
or to cover budget deficits. However, public debt is not without its downsides. One of the main concerns is that excessive debt can lead to financial instability and economic crises. This is because high levels of debt can make it difficult for governments to borrow money in the future, which can lead to higher interest rates and inflation. Additionally, if investors lose confidence in a government's ability to repay its debt, they may demand higher interest rates or even refuse to lend altogether. So how can governments strike a balance between providing necessary liquidity during financial distress and avoiding excessive debt? This is where the concept of a Taylor Rule for Public Debt comes in. A Taylor Rule for Public Debt is a policy framework that aims to tie private sector demand for new debt with the current value of maturing debt. This is achieved through a set of rules that act as an automatic stabilizer on investor demand for public debt. For example, if debt exceeds the socially optimal amount of liquidity, taxes on investors may be raised to reduce demand. Inversely, if debt is below the optimal level, taxes may be lowered to encourage investment. The success of a Taylor rule for public debt depends on a number of factors, including the amplitude of income fluctuations and the intertemporal elasticity of substitution. Additionally, fiscal policy is most successful when public debt and private debt are perfect substitutes. In conclusion, public debt is an important tool for governments to finance public projects and provide support during economic downturns. However, excessive debt can lead to financial instability and economic crises. A Taylor Rule for Public Debt is a policy framework that aims to strike a balance between providing necessary liquidity during financial distress and avoiding excessive debt. By tying private sector demand for new debt with the current value of maturing debt, a Taylor Rule for Public Debt can act as an automatic stabilizer on investor demand for public debt. It is worth noting that while a Taylor Rule for Public Debt can be effective in providing the optimum amount of liquidity, it may not be suitable for all economies. For example, in low collateral economies or environments with weak enforcement, public debt may be the only source of liquidity. Additionally, the concept of bubbles can pose a challenge to the stability of public debt. Bubbles occur when investors become overly optimistic about the future value of an asset, leading to a rapid increase in demand and prices. However, bubbles are inherently unstable and can lead to financial crises when they burst. Overall, public debt is a complex and multifaceted topic that requires careful consideration and policy frameworks to ensure stability and sustainability. A Taylor Rule for Public Debt is one such framework that can help governments strike a balance between providing necessary liquidity and avoiding excessive debt. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode, where we will be discussing monetary policy in an oil exporting economy. In this episode, we will be exploring the impact of the sudden collapse of world oil prices on emerging economies and the challenges it poses to inflation-targeting central banks. To begin with, 
let's first understand what an oil exporting economy is. An oil exporting economy is a country that relies heavily on the export of oil to generate revenue for its economy. These countries are often referred to as petrostates and include countries such as Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Venezuela. Now, when the world oil prices suddenly collapse, it can have a significant impact on these petrostates. This is because their economies are heavily dependent on oil exports, and a sudden drop in oil prices can lead to a significant reduction in revenue. This, in turn, can lead to a range of macroeconomic consequences, including a decline in GDP growth, an increase in unemployment, and a rise in inflation. So, how do inflation-targeting central banks in oil-exporting economies respond to the challenge posed by the collapse of oil prices? Well, this is where the concept of monetary policy comes into play. Monetary policy refers to the actions taken by a central bank to manage the money supply and interest rates in an economy to achieve specific macroeconomic objectives, such as price stability and full employment. In the case of oil-exporting economies, central banks may need to adjust their monetary policy to respond to the impact of the collapse of oil prices. For example, they may need to lower interest rates to stimulate economic growth and reduce unemployment. However, this can also lead to an increase in inflation, which can be challenging for central banks that are committed to maintaining price stability. To help quantify the impact of changes in oil prices on the economy, the authors of this PDF file use a three-sector dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model. This model allows them to simulate the impact of changes in oil prices on the Colombian economy and to explore the effectiveness of different monetary policy responses. Overall, this PDF file provides valuable insights into the challenges faced by inflation-targeting central banks in oil-exporting economies and the importance of effective monetary policy in responding to the impact of changes in oil prices. It highlights the need for central banks to be flexible and adaptable in their approach to monetary policy to ensure that they can achieve their macroeconomic objectives in a rapidly changing economic environment. In conclusion, we hope that this podcast episode has provided you with a better understanding of monetary policy in an oil exporting economy and the challenges it poses to inflation-targeting central banks. We encourage you to read the PDF file for a more in-depth analysis of the topic and to stay informed about the latest developments in the global economy. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we hope to see you again soon. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of sales of distressed residential property. Today, we will be discussing the impact of foreclosures on the housing market and the surrounding community. Foreclosure is a legal process in which a lender takes possession of a property from a borrower who has defaulted on their mortgage payments. This can have a significant impact on the housing market, as foreclosed properties are often sold at a discount, which can drive down the prices of other homes in the area. Additionally, foreclosures can have a negative impact on the surrounding community, 
as they can lead to increased crime rates, decreased property values, and a decline in the overall quality of life. One of the key factors that contribute to homeowners becoming underwater on their mortgages is a decline in housing prices. When housing prices fall, homeowners who have taken out mortgages that are larger than the value of their homes may find themselves unable to sell their homes for enough money to pay off their mortgages. This can lead to defaults on their loans and ultimately to foreclosure. Changes in housing prices can also affect the likelihood of foreclosure. When housing prices are rising, homeowners who are struggling to make their mortgage payments may be able to sell their homes for a profit, which can help them avoid foreclosure. However, when housing prices are falling, homeowners may find themselves unable to sell their homes for enough money to pay off their mortgages, which can increase the likelihood of foreclosure. To mitigate the impact of foreclosure on the housing market and the surrounding community, policymakers have implemented a variety of strategies. One approach is to provide financial assistance to homeowners who are struggling to make their mortgage payments. This can include loan modifications, refinancing, and other forms of financial assistance. Another approach is to encourage lenders to avoid fire sales or dumping foreclosed properties onto the market all at once. This can help to prevent a glut of foreclosed properties from driving down housing prices and destabilizing the housing market. Finally, policymakers can work to address the long-term effects of foreclosure on the surrounding community. This can include investing in community development programs, providing financial assistance to homeowners who are struggling to make their mortgage payments, and working to improve the overall quality of life in the affected neighborhoods. In conclusion, foreclosures can have a significant impact on the housing market and the surrounding community. However, by implementing effective policies and strategies, policymakers can help to mitigate the negative effects of foreclosure and promote a stable and healthy housing market. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the topic of sales of distressed residential property. We hope that you found this discussion informative and helpful. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more informative Welcome to our podcast on constructing nowcasts of U.S. real gross domestic product. Growth. In this episode, we will be discussing the process of analyzing the performance of the economy in real time and evaluating the incoming flow of information contained in economic announcements. Nowcasting is a term used to describe the process of forecasting economic variables in real time. This is a challenging task because economic data is often released with a lag and the data that is available is often incomplete or subject to revision. Despite these challenges, nowcasting is an important tool for central banks and private forecasters who need to make informed decisions about monetary policy and investment strategies. One of the key challenges in nowcasting is dealing with the large amount of data that is available. There are many different economic indicators that can be used to forecast GDP growth, including employment data, consumer spending, and industrial production, 
However, not all of these indicators are equally useful, and some may be more relevant to certain sectors of the economy than others. To address this challenge, economists and economic consulting firms use a variety of nowcast methodologies. One common approach is to use statistical models that incorporate a wide range of economic indicators. These models can be quite complex, and they require a significant amount of data to be effective. Another approach is to use a more simple model that focuses on a smaller set of indicators. This approach is often used by central banks, which have access to a wide range of data and can use their own judgment to determine which indicators are most relevant. Regardless of the approach used, the goal of nowcasting is to provide timely and accurate information about the state of the economy. This information can be used by policymakers to make informed decisions about monetary policy, and it can also be used by investors to make informed decisions about where to invest their money. In this podcast, we have discussed the challenges of nowcasting and the different approaches that economists and economic consulting firms use to develop nowcasts of real GDP growth. We hope that this information has been helpful in understanding the importance of nowcasting and the role it plays in shaping our understanding of the economy. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us again for future episodes on a wide range of economic topics. Thank you for listening to our podcast on constructing nowcasts of U.S. real gross domestic product growth. We hope that you found this episode informative and helpful in understanding the importance of nowcasting and the role it plays in shaping our understanding of the economy. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please feel free to reach out to us. We would love to hear from you and continue the conversation. Stay tuned for future episodes on a wide... Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we'll be discussing a topic that affects millions of people around the world, unemployment. Specifically, we'll be exploring the concept of duration dependence in unemployment spells and what it means for job seekers and policymakers. So, what is duration dependence? Put simply, it refers to the idea that the longer someone is unemployed, the less likely they are to find a job. This may seem like common sense, but it has important implications for both individuals and the economy as a whole. To understand why, let's start with some basic facts. In the United States, for example, the average duration of unemployment is currently around 20 weeks. One. However, this varies widely depending on factors such as age, education level, and industry. For example, Older workers and those with less education tend to experience longer spells of unemployment, too. Now, imagine you're someone who has been unemployed for several months. You've been sending out resumes, going to job fairs, and networking as much as possible, but you still haven't found a job. According to duration dependence theory, your chances of finding a job are decreasing with each passing week. 
This is because employers may view long-term unemployment as a signal that you're less desirable as a candidate, even if you have the same qualifications as someone who has been unemployed for a shorter period of time. Three, this has important implications for individuals who may experience financial hardship and emotional stress as a result of prolonged unemployment. It also has broader economic implications, as long-term unemployment can lead to a decrease in consumer spending and a decrease in overall economic growth. Four, so what can be done to address duration dependence? One potential solution is to provide more support for job seekers, such as job training programs and financial assistance. Another is to encourage employers to consider the skills and qualifications of candidates rather than simply looking at their employment history. This could involve initiatives such as ban-the-box laws, which prohibit employers from asking about criminal history on job applications. 5. Of course, these solutions are not without their challenges. For example, job training programs can be expensive and may not always lead to immediate employment. And while ban-the-box laws may help to reduce discrimination against certain groups, they may also make it more difficult for employers to screen candidates and ensure workplace safety. Despite these challenges, it's clear that duration dependence is a complex issue that requires careful consideration from policymakers, employers, and job seekers alike. By working together to address the root causes of long-term unemployment, we can help to create a more equitable and prosperous society for all. In conclusion, duration dependence is a concept that affects millions of people around the world. By understanding its implications and working to address its root causes, we can help to create a more just and equitable society. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast, and we hope you'll join us again next time for more informative discussions. Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of Optimal Ramsey Capital Taxation with Endogenous Government Spending. This is a complex and important topic in economics, and we'll be exploring it in depth over the course of this episode. So, what is Optimal Ramsey Capital Taxation? Essentially, it's a framework for designing an optimal tax system in an economy. The goal is to minimize welfare loss while still meeting the need for government expenditure. This is a challenging task, as there are many factors to consider when designing a tax system, including the impact on economic growth, income inequality, and government revenue. In this paper, Yili Chin and Yunsang Li explore the question of how to design an optimal taxation system in an economy, with a focus on minimizing welfare loss while meeting the need for government expenditure. They use a model that incorporates endogenous government spending, which means that the level of government spending is determined by the preferences of households and the government's ability to raise revenue through taxation. One of the key assumptions made in the Ramsey approach to optimal taxation is that the government is a benevolent planner that seeks to maximize social welfare. This means that the government takes into account 
the preferences of all households in the economy when designing the tax system. Another important assumption is that households have access to capital markets, which means that they can save and invest their income in order to earn a return. The authors find that the optimal tax rate on capital income depends on a number of factors, including the level of government spending, the elasticity of labor supply, and the degree of risk aversion among households. They also find that the optimal tax rate is higher when government spending is endogenous, meaning that it is determined by the preferences of households and the government's ability to raise revenue through taxation. However, the authors also note that their findings are based on a simplified version of the real economy and that there are many limitations to their analysis. For example, they assume that all households consume and evaluate government services equally, which may not be realistic in practice. They also assume that the government is able to perfectly target its spending to maximize social welfare, which may not be the case in reality. Despite these limitations, the author's work provides valuable insights into the design of an optimal tax system in an economy. By taking into account the preferences of households and the government's ability to raise revenue through taxation, policymakers can design a tax system that minimizes welfare loss while still meeting the need for government expenditure. In conclusion, the topic of optimal Ramsey capital taxation with endogenous government spending is a complex and important one in economics. The authors of this paper provide valuable insights into how to design an optimal tax system in an economy, taking into account the preferences of households and the government's ability to raise revenue through taxation. While their findings are based on a simplified version of the real economy, and there are limitations to their analysis, their work provides a useful framework for policymakers to consider when designing a tax system that minimizes welfare loss while still meeting the need for government expenditure. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and we hope you Welcome to our podcast on small business partnerships. Today, we will be discussing the ins and outs of partnerships in the service sector and how they function in terms of ownership, investment, and incentives. Small business partnerships are a common form of organization in the service sector, where two or more individuals come together to start a business. These partnerships can take many forms, from general partnerships where all partners share equal responsibility and liability to limited partnerships where one partner has limited liability and the others have unlimited liability. One of the main challenges of small business partnerships is managing the incentives of the partners. Because each partner has a stake in the business, they may have different goals and priorities, which can lead to conflicts and disagreements. For example, one partner may want to invest in new equipment or expand the business, while another partner may prefer to keep costs low and focus on profitability. To address these incentive problems, researchers have developed theories and models to explain how partnerships function and how they can be optimized. One such theory is the EKS model, developed by Emilio Espino, Julian Kozlowski, and Juan M. Sniz. 
This model suggests that partnerships tend to converge towards sole proprietorships over time, as partners with more private information about the business tend to buy out their less informed partners. The EKS model also suggests that transparency and communication can help to mitigate incentive problems in partnerships. By sharing information and working together to set goals and priorities, partners can align their interests and work towards a common vision for the business. In addition to theoretical models, researchers have also conducted empirical studies to examine the dynamics of small business partnerships. For example, one study found that the average number of owners in a partnership is 1.6 and the average age of the business is 3.3 years. This suggests that partnerships tend to be relatively small and young, and that turnover and changes in ownership are common. Overall, small business partnerships can be a challenging but rewarding way to start and run a business. By understanding the dynamics of partnerships and working to manage incentives and align interests, partners can build successful and sustainable businesses that benefit everyone involved. Thank you for listening to our podcast on small business partnerships and we hope you found this information helpful. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast on small business partnerships. We hope you found this information helpful and informative. If you are interested in learning more about partnerships or other forms of business organization, we encourage you to check out the resources available online or at your local library. Remember, partnerships can be a great way to start and run a business but they require careful planning, communication, and management to be successful. By working together and aligning your interests, you can build a strong and sustainable business that benefits everyone involved. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more.